Welcome to the Independent Idaho Podcast, a production of the Living Independence Network Corporation, or LINK. My name is Jeremy Maxand, and I am the Executive Director of LINK, as well as the host of the show. LINK is a regional center for independent living, and our mission is simple, to empower Idahoans across the lifespan to live the life of our choosing. You can learn more about LINK at linkidaho.org. Our guest today is Lorraine Poor, polio survivor, chair user, scientist, wife, mother, and birder. We talk with Lorraine about her experience living post-polio, her journey to become a laboratory scientist, and her passion for birding and the accessible birding outing she leads with the Golden Eagle Audubon Society. Let's get into it. Lorraine Poor, welcome to the Independent Idaho podcast. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Um, I'm really uh, excited to talk with you today about accessible birding. Um, I know we met recently at an event at the Catherine Albertson Park um, through the Golden Eagle Audubon Society. I had an accessible birding event, and so my wife and I went down and participated and had a fantastic time, met some really great people, um, saw an incredible park in downtown Boise and learned a little bit about birds. And uh, I wanted to start out by asking you why accessible birding or birding in general, why is it important to you and what's it all about? I think birding is something that everyone can access, you know, whether they're, even if they can't see or they they can still hear birds or if they can't if they're not very mobile you can even sit at your window and look at birds you know you you can do it just about anywhere and um, it's something that I've done since I was just a little child Um, my father put out feeders in our backyard in Ohio where we lived and uh, ever since then, you know, I had my little bird book and my binoculars, and I've just been doing it ever since, and it's just part of, part of who I am. And growing up, um, what, what kind of environment were you in growing up in Ohio? Were you on a, a large piece of property or in a city? Um, what, what, where, where were you when you experienced that? This was in a suburb of Cleveland. Uh, it was called Euclid. And um, it was just a little suburban house in the 50s. And um, I think my, fa- my father liked birds, but I think he wanted, he knew I had an interest in nature, even as a small child. And I think he wanted to encourage that. And he gave me that opportunity because I didn't have to go out of the house to mm-hmm. enjoy that. So uh, should I talk about my my disability sure yeah okay yeah I was four years old and I I had polio and that was like the last of the epidemics that they had before everyone had the vaccine and uh, so I think he realized that that was something I really loved and he would take me also out to the local parks Uh, Cleveland has a, a beautiful park system that they call the emerald necklace and it just circles the whole city of Cleveland and you can access it pretty easily. And he would take me there, you know, to, to look at, because I was interested in everything that had to do with nature. So, but birds were the main thing for me that stuck with me my whole life, mm-hmm. everywhere I went. So. And what, what was that like as a young person with polio? I mean, how did, you know, how did that affect your day-to-day um, kind of just getting around? It was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. Because back in those days, I think a, a lot of dis- disabled people were kind of hidden away. So people didn't see them often. And when they did, 
you know, it was like, oh my God, mommy, look, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, people, you know, it, it made me feel, even as a kid, you know, very uncomfortable. And uh, that, you know, it's nice to see how that's changed over the, the years, you know, that now I can go places without even, you know, noticing people reacting at all, you know, if, if any, if at all. So, yeah, it was, it was very hard and I couldn't go to school because the, the local schools were totally inaccessible. So I had to go to a special um, school for the disabled, which was quite a distance away from my house. It was in downtown Cleveland. And it wasn't, um, it, they didn't separate people who had uh, cognitive disabilities from the physical disabilities. So what they would do is like in my case, they just skipped me ahead several grades mm -hmm. <laughs> so that I could, uh, you know, handle the work without, you know, I mean, without being with people who are gonna keep me kind of behind. So, so I ended up uh, being in there till the ninth grade and that's when they ended. So then I had to find a high school that I could go to. And back in those days, there just, there was no accommodations made for people in wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know how much detail you want. I but, love it. Yeah, okay, I'll, basically, I'll, yeah, yeah, the high school I went to was huge. It had like 3,000 students and there were three floors, but they didn't, the only elevator they had was a freight elevator, mm -hmm. the kind that has a strap that you have to lift up to open the door. So each of my classes, there was someone assigned to push me to my next class, open the freight elevator doors, and get me to my class on time. So um, that was always embarrassing at the, at the beginning of each semester, you know, wondering how irritated you know, the assigned person was going to be. But you know, after a while, I had friends who you know were in my classes that would you know happily push me to my next class. So and I had to have a lap board because I couldn't sit at any of the desks. So I had my little lap board with all my books and papers and from, from one class to the next, so. And were there other students in the school who also had uh, disabilities of any kind that were peers or you connected with or? Not really, there was one girl who used crutches, but she was like a year ahead of me and I never, never had her in any classes or spent any time with her, so. And what'd your, what'd your family do in Cleveland? Well, my mother was just a homemaker and my father, it's kind of an interesting thing. He was the manager of a radio station in Cleveland. So um, I've also always loved music. That's mm -hmm. always been a big uh, thing of mine. So yeah, I remember even as a little kid listening to records and he'd bring me home like the top 10 billboard <laughs> records on the chart every week. And I had my own little 45 player that I would carry around with me with batteries. So, but yeah, so he, he had a pretty good living managing that radio station. So, so you finished mm -hmm. high school mm -hmm. and what was next? Um, that was something I, I couldn't go to the universities nearby. I lived not too far from there was Cleveland State University and then there was Kent State, which I'm sure you've heard of. Mm -hmm. um, but neither of them were especially accessible and they um, also, you know, the weather in Cleveland is bad in the winter, really bad. I mean, feet of, feet of snow sometimes. But uh, what I ended up going to was a, um, a two-year um, community college. It was called Lakeland Community College. And I went there for a couple years. And then that was when uh, decided to move to California. So we left Ohio. I was 25. Uh, my boyfriend, who later became my husband, um, we the two of us moved together to uh, Orange County, California. And it just so happened, by total coincidence, there was a, a big college not far from where we lived called California State University Fullerton. And I enrolled there and it turns out it was like one of the most accessible mm -hmm. campuses in California. 
So, and they even had a, I was totally amazed, a handicapped student coordinator, wow. a person whose whole job was to do what it took to help uh, disabled people succeed at the university, getting them special equipment if they needed it and, you know, getting them, they, they could have first choice in uh, classes and it, it was really nice. <laughs> it was really Well, that really must nice. have, I mean, how did that change your perspective on what was possible and, and what you wanted to do in life? It made a huge difference. It, um, at first, you know, when I told them what I wanted to do for a career, they were saying, you know, nobody else has ever wanted to do that before. And, I, and what I wanted to do was to be um, a scientist. Hmm. I wanted to work in laboratory science. And they said, well, all right, we'll get you the equipment you need. We'll get you a special wheelchair that will raise up on a little elevator so you can work at the lab tables. And they did that. And uh, I was just so, I felt so supported and it was wonderful. And I got, ended up getting my, my bachelor's degree in biology. And um, then I went on to do my training. They require, in California, you're required to do one year internship working in a laboratory in all the different departments. And then you have to pass a state exam and uh, a national exam, which I did. And then I started working and I made good money and mm -hmm. it was great. You know, I, I felt like uh, this is what I wanted to do and, and, it, and it worked. And I ended up having a career as what they called a clinical laboratory scientist. And I worked in microbiology and I did that. And when I moved here to Boise, I did it at St. Luke's for almost 20 years. And now I'm retired, uh, I'm retired in 2014. So now I can spend all my time watching birds. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So you, you ended up in, in Idaho mm -hmm. in, and that was the early nineties uh, or the late eighties, yeah, 95, oh, 95. Fact, New Year's day, 95. Wow. Yeah. And, and you, you, did you arrive in Idaho already having a job or no. did you arrive and then you, you found a job? Yeah, no. First, my husband got a job first. He was working in the semiconductor industry and he got a job at a place that doesn't exist anymore, but it was called Zilog. It was mm -hmm. out in Nampa. And so he got the job first and they actually moved us here. And uh, so then I set about trying to find, I, I was hoping for St. Luke's or St. Al's. And uh, at first nothing was happening. They, were, they didn't have any openings. And I tried to do everything I could think of to, you know, just make an appointment, show up, you know, talk to the lab manager, um, give them my references, gave them my resume. And after a while they thought, well, well, let's give her a chance. So they mm -hmm. did. Yeah. So then, then I was there for 20 years. And how was that? Um, you know, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act had passed just a few years before. Mm -hmm. um, so things were starting to change. Um, how, how was that being in a chair, looking for a job, being a qualified, um, capable scientist, um, looking for a job with a disability in the healthcare industry, what were some of the what were some of the barriers that you brushed up against, or oh, did you? There were many, <laughs> um, including you know like the first place I I actually worked in two other places in California before I came here, um, but yeah, there were always physical barriers, but usually it took you know, like somebody in management who was willing to give it a try, and I think it helped because. There was a lot of affirmative action plans at some of the larger hospitals, and um, that seemed to make a difference. Because at one point, um, when I first was uh, going to do my internship, the place I was uh, interviewed at that I, I wanted to go to the most, I found out, you know, I got rejected. And I thought, 
but somebody else in my class that I knew was accepted and he didn't have nearly the grades I did. So I started getting suspicious and I called um, this guy who was the handicapped student coordinator, uh, Paul Miller was his name at Cal State Fullerton. And I said, you know, I don't understand this. You know, and he said, I'm gonna check into it. And he did. And he said, you're in. <laughs> and I, what happened was the, the lab manager said, oh, her wheelchair will be in the way. You know, it's going to block the aisles. You know, we don't want her for seriously. And I couldn't believe it. You know, and I, and, um, but, you know, he, when he talked to human resources and said, you know, you can't do that. And they were going, oh, okay, we'll take care of it. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, stuff like that, you know, would happen occasionally. But... Um, then, um, and when I was here, I was lucky at St. Luke's, uh, they had had experience with a, a person who was disabled before, who had um, done a really good job and had retired. So they thought, well, you know, if he could do it, maybe she can do it too. Mm -hmm. And microbiology was something where you can sit at a low table like this and work. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas some parts of the lab by tradition are, have tall tables like chemistry. So, you know, who knows why, right. no, no good reason. But uh, yeah, just the fact that I, and I had good references and, and they thought, okay. Of course, they, they started me out uh, doing kind of uh, assisting rather than doing the whole job. So, and that, that went on for a while, but then finally they thought, well, she seems to be able to do it. So, okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll give her the, the full job. So. So when you so you obviously carried an interest and love for birds and birding mm -hmm. with you from Cleveland, um, did that did that follow you to California? And did you do did you do any of that in California? And how was that? Yes, um, when I moved to California, I got very involved uh, in the Sierra Club, and the Sierra Club was uh, they had. It was a very large organization in, in Southern California, and they actually would publish like a booklet of outings of all different types for all different groups, and they were kind of ahead of their time. They had a special group for, for disabled people. They called it the Road Committee, and they would take people in wheelchairs and get them up hills, and you know they had all these volunteers, and, and um, I loved that, but I really wanted more to focus on nature and it turned out they had another section called the Natural Science section, which I joined. And that was more the birding um, aspect. And they also had like camping trips. And so I got very involved with them and actually started leading some trips with them. And uh, when I had my daughter in 1984, um, when she was little, we would all go, we'd, we would organize camping trips with the Sierra Club for, we called it the Little Hikers. And um, so I got kind of used to the idea of organizing and leading trips back then. And when I moved here, I didn't really get involved with Audubon until I retired because it was just really hard for me to get away on early in the morning on a weekend because I had to work a lot of weekends. And uh, the weekends I didn't work, I wanted to sleep. <laughs> you know, so and birders are notorious about getting up early for a lot of their trips. So, um, but yeah, then after, and then also a big thing that helped was my car. I got myself a, a Chrysler Pacifica with a that I could just plug into. You know, it's got an easy lock. I don't know if you ever seen yep. one of those. So I just push my chair into it and take off. And so that made it easier for me to join the the Audubon's. Uh, society when they were having outings and I started I started off they, they weren't quite sure what to do with me at first I think because I was the only person who wanted to go on these trips in a chair and so I would uh, ask them could you when you write up your trips can you say you know how is the terrain is flat or the terrain is rocky or steep or whatever and that way I'll know whether I can sign up for the trip and after a while, they started doing that on a regular basis. They would put a description. And so I started showing up more and more for these trips. And they got to know me and uh, asked me, do you want to lead some? And I said, mm. sure, yeah, I'll lead a, 
I'll lead some trips to places that I, I know are accessible. And then gradually, I think the, the Audubon Society as a whole has become, they're trying very hard to be inclusive to everybody. Uh, they have, uh, you know, the idea of having accessible trips is new. That just started like this year, hmm. you know, where it would be labeled accessible and, and I was the obvious person to lead them. Mm-hmm. So, and I like doing that. So, so that's how, kind of how that started this year. Wow. So literally trailblazing. That's, um, that's really, that's an interesting history with some of the conservation groups and, uh, their efforts to be inclusive, um, through time. That's really interesting to me mm-hmm. where talk a little bit about the, the camping that you did in California. Like where, where did you go to places that we would, we would, we would know or recognize, um, popular destinations or, or were they just local spots? Um, what, what went on on those camping trips? I, I love camping. And so oh. when, when people talk about camping, I, I love to, to hear it. So, um, what did you do? Uh, let's see, mostly I would be the person to, to, um, put out the information, you know, when and where, um, and some of the camping trips we went were places that I thought would have a lot of natural beauty where we'd see a lot of birds where the children would have a good time. Like we'd bring like little plastic boxes with a little magnifying lid Mm -hmm. so that we could pick up bugs and the kids could look at them and they could, uh, you know, we could talk about whatever we saw. And I remember one time we went to this place called um, Cayamaca Rancho State Park. So a lot of the places we went were state parks mm-hmm. that were developed enough where, um, you know, there were toilets, there were camp rings, campfire rings and picnic tables, uh, which makes it a lot easier for me. So I never did any kind of... Um, you know, wilderness or off-road camping. It was always a developed campground. Um, But at this one place, I was, I always would take peanuts with me and I laid some peanuts out on the picnic table and a a chickadee who was up in the tree came down and got one. And uh, so I remember just going like this with my hand and it came and landed on my hand. And then all the children were like, (laughs) they wanted to do it too. And, And it was just such a thrill for, for everybody, the children, I think it probably made an impression on them, you know, forever, just that they could actually have nature come to them like that. Um, but yeah, we went to, there were several camps, campgrounds that I liked the most because they, they had a lot of other features besides just camping, like some of them had fishing, um, in some cases, horseback riding for the kids. Um, and that, oh, that was something else. I took horseback riding lessons back when I was back there too, and scuba diving lessons. There, there were a lot of um, opportunities there that uh, that I I took advantage of when I you know was younger. Mm-hmm. So before we I think talk in more detail about accessible birding in mm-hmm. in Boise, um, maybe describe for the folks tuning in what we've tossed around the, the term birding but it's got to be more complex than just what i think it is um and maybe it isn't maybe it's simple but um what what is it really all about um birding and how involved can it get and and not just you know what's the impact not just on the individual who's doing the birding but is there a larger social impact that comes from people learning about and being out uh, experiencing nature in this way and and looking at birds yeah i think birding is just something that almost everybody can do Um, i've noticed on some of our trips uh, there are so many newcomers to boise who were looking for some way to plug into to a group where that had things they, that they liked when they lived other places before. And um, basically, you don't need much except a phone or a book, a guidebook. And um, nowadays, with all the fancy apps that we have on the phone, you know, you can, 
you can identify bird sounds, you can take a picture, you can describe a bird, and you'll get all kinds of ID help. And um, actually the same with, with other things, plants, insects, you know, which I'm also interested in. But it's just something that I think you don't have to have a lot of experience to get started with. Um, I've been trying to learn more about birding by ear, um, mm-hmm. just because uh, a lot of times I can hear a bird way before I can see it, mm-hmm. if I ever see it. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, you, you hear sounds often enough, and, and with the apps that they have, you can start learning, oh, well, that sounds like a, a chickadee, or that sounds like a morning dove, or... Uh, and I think people can pick up a lot of these things pretty quickly, mm-hmm. if, especially if they go on. I've seen some people come back over and over again just hoping to, to learn more so they can be better birders and can enjoy it you know, more than they would if they were up by themselves. And it, it is a very social event, and it's um, a good way to just get, uh, get to know a lot of people mm-hmm. who think the same who enjoy nature. And I think a lot of that started during the pandemic where a lot of people wanted to get outside and not get too close to people indoor settings. And I think that that caused a large increase in the number of people who sign up for our birding trips. Mm-hmm. At least it seems that way to me. So. And you and you said that the, the mm-hmm. birdability trips in Boise that you've been leading, those are those are new. This is the first year that you've done those. Right. And how many did you do this year? Uh, one a month starting in April. Um, I don't. I never go birding in the winter unless it's a really nice day. I get too cold. But um, yeah, basically birdability. I was just um, looking at the link today. Um, the field trip coordinator for the Golden Eagle Audubon Society. Her name is Dondi, and Dondi has been a really good. Um, she has done so much to. Uh, encourage uh, inclusivity and and take and the idea of including all types of people on these trips and she let me know about birdability and asked if I would um, review some birding spots and see how they were as far as accessibility as far as the bathrooms the width of the trails Mm -hmm. the bridges uh, the curbs parking all these different things that would be important to somebody who might go there by themselves in a wheelchair, whether they could do it or not. And so I did that for several places. And um, other people uh, who weren't disabled tried, you know, also did it. You know, they just took pictures of all the all the trails and the different features. So that the birdability, uh, I don't know if you've looked at their website yet, but. They have a map of the United States mm-hmm. with all the birding spots that have been reviewed. And so I think that's been a big help. And just reaching out to people to let them know, like I'm really glad that Liz, who's the, um, I'm one of the directors, she, no, she's the volunteer director. I think that was great that she tried to find people who might be interested, who maybe didn't even know these places existed, mm-hmm. or that there was a group doing this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, it's fairly new and I'm really glad they started doing it this year. I think it's been, it's been nice for me too, to always have a, a place I could go where other, I could teach other people what I know about the the birds and Mm -hmm. other aspects of nature. Yeah. What, what are some of the, what are some of the, the trails or, or paths or parks or locations, um, around here in Boise? or even anywhere in Idaho, I thought I saw, I saw a number of different places on the map in Idaho. Um, describe maybe what, where those places are. We met at Catherine, Catherine Albertson, Albertson mm-hmm. park, which if, you know, if you're tuning into this and you haven't been to Catherine Albertson park lately, it's an absolutely stunning park, um, with incredible, uh, d- just a beautiful park in general and beautiful in terms of accessibility that the pathways, the bridges, the observation decks, everything was just beautiful. Um, and, and a scene that you don't expect to find yourself in, in downtown Boise. It's really, it's a special place. Um, and so it was really neat to, to be down there 
in in doing the birding activity but there's other places as well maybe you can talk about um, the places that you took uh, you took folks to do birding this year yeah one place I went um, oh there's another you know there are several parks in Boise that are named after the wives of of uh, big shots (laughs) (laughs) there's Marianne Williams which is over um, also on the green belt by um, Barber Barber Park or not Barber Park Barber Valley Road is, is the way you get there from uh, uh, Bound Crossing or from Park Center. Park Center Boulevard. And um, so that's a good one. And it, it's quite large. Uh, and there's many trails through it. And also Barber Park is another one. That's, um, it's right toward Eckert Road um, where, the, where they boat launch the uh, rafts mm-hmm. in the summer. So that's another one. Um, my f- personal favorite is um, it's called the Bethine Church Trail, and it's part of the Green Belt. When you come into Bound Crossing, right off of Boise Avenue or Park Center on the other side, um, that takes you right down to the river, and it's a path that bikes, bicycles can't go on, and it's uh, extremely good habitat for birds. And that's like, it's so easy to get to. It's so accessible. Although you do have to park like at the library at Bound Crossing. You can't, you can't park anywhere else. They're all mm-hmm. neighborhoods. But uh, it's not a far distance mm-hmm. to go down there. Um, another place that I really like is um, Lucky Peak, uh, the uh, Discovery Park section. Um, if you park by Lucky Peak, a sandy point, mm-hmm. and you can take a trail that'll take you over along the river uh, by the dam, and you go over to Discovery Park, and that's another really good place in the spring, especially. You'll see so many migrants come in there, um, birds that are really strikingly beautiful and colorful, like orioles and um, kingbirds. There are several that are, you know, people get all you know, ooh and ah when they see them western tanagers things like that mm-hmm. so those are those are the main ones that i have led but i'm hoping that when they finish this accessible trail they're going to do up in hull's gulch mm-hmm. i'll be able to start doing some up there too mm-hmm. so as it is right now every wednesday of the month first wednesday of the month they have a little bird walk that leads from the um the nature center um forget the name of it right now but um they uh walk through the the trails that go through Hull's Gulch that are also pretty flat and accessible Mm -hmm. so but yeah there are a lot I you know I find out oh another one Shakespeare Festival grounds Mm -hmm. is really a good one for just just sitting in one spot and you know watching the birds come to you or the deer and all kinds of uh, it's just beautiful there it's quiet you know when the Shakespeare festival isn't running yeah we so. live right across the street from the shakespeare festival oh. and there there's a lot of wildlife activity mm-hmm. uh right now in particular uh, a lot of i believe coyotes oh. um, making a lot of noise at night mm-hmm. um, but it's beautiful to listen to and mm-hmm. um definitely lots of uh lots of bird activity going on down by the river um so what what should folks expect to see or hear? What kind of birds are common in this area, and what kind of birds are not so common? Because I, you know, we 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 have an aunt that um, in eastern Idaho who is has been an avid birder for many 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 years, and um, my impression is that there's either often a group or individual contest um uh to uh, you know to 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 see witness hear um different types of birds and sometimes really uncommon birds Mm -hmm. and so there's kind of a you know competition against yourself or competition with peers to you know check that box for a particular bird that is is really difficult to you know to experience and i am in no way shape or form knowledgeable about um birds or birding at this point 
And uh, so I don't really know. Um, you know, I, I'm from Southeast Alaska, so the you know we had I think we had blue jays, uh, ravens, and eagles. And ravens and eagles are huge and prolific, um, and incredible birds to to watch um, do what they do. And so I'm curious down here what what should what should we be seeing or hearing, or what should we be hoping that we have a chance to see or hear? Well, I'm one of the, I'm not one of the people who rushes out to see every rarity, you know, because sometimes it involves driving for hours or going someplace that, that I know I can't get to. But uh, I do love to just see the common birds or the ones that are migrating through. Those are always really special, but there are, we have winter, we have birds that are only here in the winter only in the summer and our year-round residents and the year-round residents that most people should be able to see would be the house finch the house sparrow if you live near the town um, chickadees and um, there's a, a large and Canada geese mm-hmm. <laughs> mallards um, then you're going to have your uh, the winter only, and I think most people have probably seen the little dark-eyed juncos. Those are the birds that arrive at this time of year, and they stay and they leave in the spring. And they go up to the you know the tundra, and they have black heads. And I think most people have seen them hopping around on the ground all over town. They're very common. Um, when you mentioned blue jay, a blue jay is an eastern bird, mm. but I had them in my yard two years ago, and I was so excited because you know I grew up in Ohio where they're common, mm. and to have them here was just like oh my gosh, you know it's not supposed to happen very often. Um, but I put out peanuts every day, and it, they'd come, and there were birders lining up in front of my house to see if they could see them because you just don't see them here in Boise hardly ever. So yeah, it was, it was always funny. I saw there was another birder out there to see the blue jays. And um, this time of year, also you'll have ducks that uh, go to play. Oh, I f- forgot one of my favorite places, Hyatt Hidden Lakes Reserve, which is Maple Grove and Chinden. So if you're going down Chinden, you turn left on Maple Grove. It's right there on the right. Okay. It's a reclaimed, I think it was a, quarry or something and now it's a wetlands and um, it's just a wonderful place to go to see the especially the winter ducks uh, all kinds of that you wouldn't see other places and in the summer there are a lot of birds that breed there like yellow-headed blackbirds that are really great to see they're large large blackbirds with a solid yellow head mm. and um, they're uh, so the only problem there in the summer is the vegetation gets so high and overgrown that sometimes it's like, you know, I can't, can't see over right. it. But uh, there are always some spots where you have a good view. Okay. But yeah, that's another place that I, I have led trips before too. Um, yeah, and then in the spring is my favorite because in the spring you'll get all the, the birds from uh, South America or Central America that breed here and uh, then, go, then go back in the winter. And you'll have, like, they call them the neotropical migrants, and they're the ones that are so beautiful and colorful, like uh, western tanagers and orioles and uh, kingbirds and some other insect eaters. Um, but yeah, so yeah, every time of year is special, and... Um, there's always something to see, even in your own backyard. You know, I have all, multiple feeders in my yard, mm. and you know, I'm always looking out there, going, "Oh, what I got today." You know, goldfinches and juncos and house finches, and morning doves, and, and a Cooper's hawk that'll fly through and grab a bird. <laughs> what's <laughs> your favorite over. bird? Like, what's the one that you see and you you just brings a smile to your face and you think, "Yeah, this is this is really cool." Oh, let's see. God, there's so many, but I think I really admire the Cooper's hawk because they have adapted. They're a beautiful bird, a large, 
hawk that uh, only hunts birds. So, and it sounds like, oh, you know, you don't want it to hurt the poor little birds, but, but they're just so amazing how they have adapted to suburban life and uh, taking advantage of bird feeders that people put out. And I see them fly through my yard a couple times a week, and they don't know they don't always catch something, but it's it's always fun to see them try. And uh, I really love uh, eagles. I like all the predator birds, mm-hmm. you know, the, all the raptors. They're all just kind of amazing how they how they do it. Um, and what? So you you've had um, I suspect some pretty good turnout at these birding events. What, what kind of feedback have you gotten from folks about, about the events? Oh, it's, a, it's been really good. Um, a lot of people are just, they're just so excited that, that this is going on here, that they can, uh, they can come here, they can enjoy this, you know, it's kind of a, a hobby sport, you know, and they can, um, and they can do it repeatedly because there's trips frequently. And um, I think it's just made some people quite really happy to to be able to join in. And they just, they even write some nice comments sometimes. And I'm just like, wow, that's great. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad to hear it that they enjoyed it. And they, they want to come back and they want to do it over and over again. Like I did, you know, when I first started. And... What do you think, um, what, what's in store next? I mean, it, this has been a really, it sounds like a very successful, I wouldn't call it necessarily a pilot, but a successful like launch of, of this activity, accessible activity. And is this something that you're going to continue doing um, in the, the spring, summer, and fall? Um, has there been talk about um, you know, expanding it to Nampa, Caldwell, or other places in the valley. Um, what, based on what you experienced and the success that it's had this year, um, you must be looking forward to next year and thinking about different experiences. Yes, yeah, I'm definitely going to be very involved again next year and probably try to increase the number of places that we offer. Um, in fact, I think about that a lot, you know, what, where I could go or what new places I could learn about that I could, you know, share with other people. Uh, you know, there, there are more accessible places than you'd imagine. Mm -hmm. And some places that are maybe not right now, but could become, could become so with a little bit of work. You know, I think the city of Boise has done a really good job and especially like what they did with Catherine Albertson Park, you know putting all that thought into bridges that you people in a wheelchair could see you know mm-hmm. without being blocked by the by the top of the of the railing and you know just making it um, just so easy to get around and all those overlooks over the the ponds and the marshes that's just there's, there's an and there's one other place I have to give them credit for that I didn't mention it's called Golda Harris Nature Preserve and it's very small, and it's right on the edge of uh, Marianne Williams Park. But it also has a, a ramp that leads up to a large platform that overlooks this kind of woodsy, marshy area that's um, uh, a beaver pond, uh, the water that backs up from the beaver pond. And it's just filled with birds. And it's just a perfect uh, spot for them to be and breed and, and eat. So. Yeah, that's another thing. I, I think Boise has put a lot of thought into this, and I, I give them a lot of credit, and I even wrote them a letter telling mm-hmm. them, thank you, thank you mm-hmm. for doing this. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to be even more involved next year, I think. Yeah, there's a, a, a group of um, cross-disability group of folks who have been working with the city, as I'm sure different people have on, on these issues over time, to try and increase the number of uh, accessible trails uh, in the lower foothills mm-hmm. and um, there was a I think a vote recently by city council to appropriate some clean water and open space funding to um, add a section of accessible trail up off I believe of 8th street and 
it it would it would allow folks, uh, particularly in chairs, to kind of get get into some areas, um, some wooded areas uh, that are not you know not accessible right now. But it makes me think of what opportunities might come in terms of birding in that area. There's got to be all kinds of little critters running around and flying around um, that we would be able to go and actually be out there and experience. Mm. Yeah, in fact, I think that's probably very close to a trip I took recently for a birding by ear class where we went on some trails I'd never seen before that I have a feeling are going to be included in that new um, accessible Hull's Gulch Trail. Uh, but yeah, I went, I saw some kind of iffy areas where I thought, this is a little too steep for me, you know, I, I, and I turned around and went back down because it was like making me nervous because there was a drop off. And, and my chair, when it goes up, you know, anything steep or sandy, I start to slide. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, that always makes me a little, little cautious about mm-hmm. some of those. Oh, and one bird I have to mention again at, in the Hull's Gulch area is there's a resident, Anna's hummingbird, that stays there all winter. And there, there are several hum, uh, Anna's hummingbirds that people will see at their feeders if they have a heated hummingbird feeder in the winter and I had one last year and that's kind of a a crazy thing you wouldn't expect a hummingbird could live in the winter Mm -hmm. someplace but they can they're tough Mm. yeah and and there's uh, they're increasing their numbers and breeding here now which they didn't you know 10 years ago so yeah I mean maybe maybe talk a little bit about if you if you thought about this before what what are the Coming from a science and biology type background, um, what what are some of the threats to birds um, that we need to have on our radar that we may not be thinking about? There's a lot of development going on, a lot of impact on the landscape, on the watershed. Um, I can't help but think that that progress may have some kind of an impact, not necessarily positive, on on birds and um, you know, what do we need to be paying attention to? Yeah, development's the main one right now because, um, you know, there's so many people who want to live here and they, they don't have enough housing and, and they keep building farther and farther out. I know I've, since I've lived here um, for 27 years, I've seen just one development after another go into the east of us, you know, Harris Ranch, mm-hmm. uh, Surprise Valley, and now there's going to be more they're talking about huge developments between here and Mountain Home. Um, so yeah, a lot of habitats, a lot of habitat is going to be lost to development. And I think there are a lot of people who they don't understand what wildlife need, so they cut everything down. They want everything to be neat. They don't want to leave snag trees, which birds need for nesting. They uh, want to use pesticides and herbicides. Um, which is really a shame that the and, and we've seen the damage it's done, not only to bird populations but insects. You know, like like the monarch butterfly. You know, the way they round up ready uh, plants that you can spray broadcast pesticide or herbicides on, and it kills all the milkweed. And you know, there's just there's so much that people don't know. They think. The first thing they think, oh, I've got some bug eating my plant. I got to poison it, you know, and I've got to, I got to put all these pesticides out. And yeah, so I'd, I'd say it's habitat loss first, followed by poisons, followed by people just not, not leaving habitat, you know, not leaving the the trees and the plants that birds and insects need, because birds, a lot of birds eat insects, and if you poison all the insects, you're taking away their food source. Well, as we wrap it up, I'm wondering if you can tell our uh, audience what, um, how they can get involved if they're interested in this, if this sounds like something uh, fun that they want to participate in. Um, how do they get plugged into uh, accessible birding and these outings? I would go to the Golden Eagle Audubon Society website. They have a very nice uh, calendar that will tell you all the trips that are coming up, 
and they'll tell you if it's accessible and you can read now that you can read the descriptions of the trips and you'll know whether it's something that you know is flat even terrain or not you know they'll tell you and if it says accessible it's it means that i'm leading it so you know it's got to be accessible and uh my chair i have a power wheelchair and which makes it a little easier for me because you know I, i've got good traction and I, and i don't have to be strong to get up a hill but um, you can find these things out uh, from that website and um, I think we're going to be increasing the number of trips next year uh, we seem to have more leaders now than we used to and um, they really are, are expanding their programs and doing outreach and um, I expect uh, things to go to really be better next year for a lot of people if they want to just go to the website and check it out. So Okay, and we'll include a link to that, that website okay. um, and to the BirdAbility. Yeah, the BirdAbility website. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So folks can can access it there and, and contact uh, the Golden Eagle Audubon Society mm-hmm. and, and get hooked up and maybe check out your social media channels and, and website. So Lorraine, I really want to thank you for coming down to the studio and recording this podcast. This is really interesting. And again, for folks tuning in, uh, if, if this remotely sounds interesting to you, you, you should, um, get signed up for one of these, um, birding, uh, activities. I know I will. Um, I will again, certainly. Um, so I want to thank you for coming down and, uh, thank our audience for tuning in and uh we'll leave it there and as always um idaho stay independent thank you very much